This is the Spirit of Leading. Your guide to becoming empowered to lead. Competent, confident, and connected. Someone who can and will make a difference in your workplace, your family, and your community. A picture is worth a thousand words. So what's the picture or image that others have of you? What do people say about you when you are not in their presence? Hi, I'm Garland McWaters, and in this episode of The Spirit of Leading, I want to discuss the power of images and why symbols are more powerful than words, whether it's a flag or a corporate logo or a brand name or trademark or even your own personal brand. Symbols are emotional, but words are rational. In fact, we've known for a long time in our advertising industry the power of symbols and symbolism. In fact, throughout history, symbols have been used in all kinds of of different ways to convey to people a certain emotional attachment to different things, whether it's a religion or a nationality or a city or a family or a tribe or whatever it is. Symbols have been used over and over and over again to mark identity or to give people a sense of belonging or to help uh, crystallize uh, their thinking about, uh, about a situation or an event or you know uh, the community they live in, whatever it might be. Because symbols evoke things within us at the emotional level, and then we use our words or our rhetoric or our speech-making or our writing or our journalism or a propaganda or whatever that is to explain sort of what the symbols mean. I want to really talk about what's going on with symbolism and symbols and branding and all of why, why that's so important and why that really matters in terms of the way we think about certain things, issues of the day, or even ourselves. The truth is, as I mentioned earlier, we do make emotional decisions, and then we rationalize why we made them. A lot of people are proud of the fact that they are objective, that they make rational decisions, but the research shows that over and over again, we really, in our brains, make a decision at an emotional level first, and then a split second later, we start thinking about it, and we come up with our reasons to back it up. When I was researching the subject, I came across a, an article by Laura Lake, who is a personal branding or a branding expert, a marketing expert. She actually wrote a book called Consumer Behavior for Dummies. Here's what she said. She said in her blog article, personal branding is the process of developing a mark created around your personal name or your career, and you use this mark to express and communicate your skills, your personality, and values. Now, the truth is, uh, that mark is sometimes created intentionally, but more often than not, it is created unintentionally. We're not really aware that we're doing that. And what it really comes down to is that you are your brand. So, when people think about you, what do they think about? When people imagine you, what do they imagine? Symbols and images have always been powerful. 
John Grierson, who is a Scottish documentarian and filmmaker, in fact, he was sort of pioneered documentaries in his early filmmaking days, he said, when quick results are imperative, the manipulation of the masses through symbols may be the only quick way of having a critical thing done. Robert Crumb is a legendary American cartoonist, and uh, he actually pioneered some of what we call some of the underground cartoons. And he said this, he said, pictures have a lot more power than the text itself. The text is just a bunch of little symbols, and you're actually, you, you actually read it, and then you imagine it, and even that can be uh, censored. But with pictures, it's a lot more immediate, and you can't really censor that. And people get out of the pictures kind of what they want to get out of them. Cartoons and political cartoons and things of that nature have always been very, very powerful. In fact, even recently, uh, there have been some religious uh, cartoons uh, that have been put out, you know, around the world. And the people who are in that particular religion, Islam, some were offended by the cartoons. And uh, the, they did some things to kind of react to that. Uh, so anyway, when, when the images are there, when the pictures are there, uh, we create an emotional attachment to the message that we sort of get out of that. Even trademarks and brands must be actually backed up, backed up by their performance. In fact, it's their performance and one's experience with that brand or that product or service that creates the meaning of the trademark itself. Think of brand names and trademarks with their symbols and logos. Now, let me just mention a few. How about Disney or Pixar or Public Broadcasting or Fox News, Walmart, Neiman Marcus, FedEx, General Motors, Zappos, Rolex, Timex, Mercedes-Benz, Ford, on and on and on we could go. Every time I mention a brand, a, a symbol may come to your mind that you associate with that brand in some way. And each of those brands evokes a thought or an emotional response. Some of those are positive and some of those might even be a little bit negative depending upon your own experience with them. It's not the same, it's not always exactly the same uh, emotional experience that you have that others might have. In fact, some of these organizations spend time associating their names with very positive images so that you will have a positive, re a positive reaction to their, the name association, and they want to control that. They do this intentionally to try and create that emotional connection. Because brand is not the product itself. Kevin Plank, who is the CEO and founder of Under Armour, uh, sa said that the brand is more than just uh, the, the, the product. It is uh, how you carry yourself. It's an aspiration. It's an inspirational. Uh, it's an idea. It's a theory. It's a meaning, not just the product. All those things you associate with that become the brand itself. And Jeff Bezos, who is uh, known for his building the Amazon empire, said a brand for a company is like the reputation is for a person. You earn your reputation by doing all the hard things well. Well, the value of an emotional attachment to their brand is not just because it's a, a quality brand, but as branding expert Bruce Turkle explains, it's how others feel about themselves because they use your brand. And so when it comes down to that level of emotional attachment, it's what it means to me as the user, as the one who associates with the brand and how I feel about myself for doing it, more so than just the quality of the brand itself. Turkle writes a, a regular blog and he said, Standing for something requires a strong sense of self-awareness. 
After all, before you can make a commitment to what matters, you have to know exactly what it is that does matter and why you're willing to fight for it. But once you do, standing for something can become one of the most important things you do build and protect, and that is your brand. So we ourselves create our own brand for what we stand for and the way we act and uh, the things that are important to us and the way we convey that or portray that in the lives that we live. You know, even Jesus said in his messages, you know a tree by its fruit. We, our reputations and what people think about us while we're not in the room is actually the most important thing. Even marketing experts tell us to stand for something knowing full well that some people will not buy into it or even agree. I like Seth Godin's work. Uh, one of the first books I picked up of his was Tribes, and then once I read that book, I just had to read everything else he's ever written, and I think I probably have. But he said this, and it made such an impact on me. He said, Tribes are about faith, about belief in an idea and in a community. They're grounded in respect and admiration for the leader of the tribe and for their other members as well. And who are the leaders, you know, according to Godin? Godin says that when you look around, the leaders always seem to be the heretics who challenge the status quo. They get out in front of their tribes. They create movements. And then he goes on to say that leadership is about creating change that you believe in. And even more so, he says, if you're not creating change, you're not leading. That's pretty strong. Because he's really talking about standing for something and that being a brand for something. Because when we really get down to it, the leader becomes, in a sense, sort of iconic. Another individual I've recently come across is Russell Brunson. His expertise is helping businesses thrive in this changing economy. And he's certainly been very uh, successful at that. He says that one of the centerpieces of advice that he gives is to create in the message of the company or the organization what he calls an attractive character. And it's this attractive character who symbolizes what you stand for. It can be a real person or it can be a fabricated personality. But this attractive character must stand for something. And Brunson advises us that the best ones, the best attractive characters are actually polarizing. Uh, they're not bland. They're not neutral. And he says polarizing characters actually create haters as well as raving fans. But the fans become your tribe, the true believers, your loyal customers. In other words, their message and the way they present themselves becomes their brand. You associate that concept or that idea or that direction with that individual. So here's my central point in all this. The heretics and the attractive characters become the icons for that cause or that movement that they represent. They themselves are the brand. Some will love it. Others might and probably will hate it. Symbols matter. Symbolism matters. It's emotional, it's powerful, and we connect with that. Regardless of what the symbol actually is, it evokes an emotional connection in some way. I spoke in a recent podcast about the power of belief systems, and symbols really are sort of the visual manifestation or the visual image of what uh, the belief system that sort of underlies it. Uh, so the flag, the flag is a logo, it's a symbol. When we say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, hmm, I think sometimes we really pass over that part, the for which it stands part. The question becomes, hey, what do we stand for? What do we really say we stand for? And what does this 
flag as a symbol represent? What's the brand for that flag? What does it stand for? And it goes on to say it in the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So when we talk, say, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, we're actually stating the concepts that go with the brand, the brand of the United States of America. What does it stand for? What do we say it stands for? What do we rally around? We rally around one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And every time we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we are saying that's what we stand for. That is our brand. Now, how do we make that concept of that brand a reality? I got interested in the Pledge of Allegiance as I was working through this, uh, this podcast. So I went to the website ushistory.org and I read up on the Pledge of Allegiance. And what I want to do is read verbatim from that website. So if you go to ushistory.org and you look up Pledge of Allegiance, you'll read this. It says, The Pledge of Allegiance was written in August of 1892 by the socialist minister Francis Bellamy. Let me just pause here. Now, are you already seeing some of the symbolism here? Written by a socialist minister. And so you say the word socialist as a brand, as an ideological brand, and people just go, some people just go absolutely freaking berserk. But the Pledge of Allegiance that everybody in our country stands up and salutes to, puts our hand over our heart, and says we believe in these concepts was originally penned by someone that they couldn't stand. And a lot of, these, a lot of people who have more traditional and conservative views and espouse those uh, regard a socialist concept as totally against everything they stand for. But yet here we are repeating the words with our hand over our heart written by a self-avowed socialist. Francis Bellamy, 1892, 30-some-odd years after the Civil War was over. Bellamy had actually hoped that, uh, this, uh, that this pledge would be used by citizens of any country. So he didn't write it for the United States. He wrote it as a concept for any country. And in its original form, here's what it said. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's the original wording of what has become our Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. We've only made a couple of small modifications in that. In 1923, the flag of the United States of America was added. And so we said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, etc., etc. And then in the 1950s and 1954, in response to the communist threat of the time, President Eisenhower encouraged the Congress to add the words under God, which happened. So our current Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, which it symbolizes, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, except for those two additions the actual United States flag and the, and the words under God, our Pledge of Allegiance is originally the words of a self-avowed socialist. Go figure. The power of symbol, the power of words that back up the symbol, but yet the flag we wave proudly and we pledge to proudly because it represents 
our core ideals, our core philosophy. Perhaps that gets us back to some understanding of what's going on with other flags. At the time I'm recording this podcast, there's a big issue over the Confederate battle flag and how it should be displayed or if it should be displayed at all. And when you go back to the the, the, the Confederate times, which was preceded the writing of our Pledge of Allegiance, when you go back to the Civil War times, the Confederate battle flag carried by General Robert E. Lee's, some of General Robert E. Lee's divisions, was a symbol of, uh, of being at odds with the Union, with the northern states. And as the southern states seceded and withdrew from the Union at that time, they were not interested in being indivisible. But the concept was, we want to be divided. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing, and we don't want the North, the states from the North, to to uh, to have any more to have any more connection with them in a government kind of way. We want out. We want out. And so the Civil War was fought for lots of reasons, some of which were slavery and then economics, and I'm sure there were many. But anyway, the point is the flag itself came to mean something. The Confederate flag came to mean something. In its day and time, the Confederate battle flag was a part of Robert E. Lee's army and uh, not the flag of the entire Confederacy. And uh, But over time, later on, it came to sort of symbolize the heritage of the South and so forth. But later on, it became in the South, a symbol of the states' rights Democratic Party, or what was called the Dixiecrats. That was formed in 1948. And the whole purpose of that organization was to oppose civil rights platforms of the Democratic Party. They were anti-civil rights. And that became so divisive that the Democrats themselves pretty much expunged the Dixiecrats from their party. Well, at that time, the governor of South Carolina, who was Strom Thurmond, who was was the Splinter Group's nominee for the president that year, and he even won 39 electoral votes. However, the symbol of that party was the Confederate battle flag. And so from that time forward, the Confederate battle flag has been a symbol of disunity and racial prejudice and segregation and a lot of other things that go with it in a negative kind of way. So you can understand the emotional impact that that symbol has on people who are affected by those issues. The question becomes the power of the symbol. And even though it might have intended to be not really a bad thing to the Southerners, you know, in the 1860s, in the 1960s or 1950s and 60s, and up to this day, to a lot of people, it is a very, has a very negative connotation. The brand is not a good brand for certain groups. Just saying. What we have here is a conflict in symbols. Or... Maybe more pointedly, and maybe this is the conversation going on today, do we actually have a conflict within those who are trying to resolve which symbol is the most meaningful to them? Old Glory or the Confederate battle flag? Just saying. So I think that brings out the issue, and I'm not saying that I think that the the people who revere the Confederate battle flag are racist by any means. I'm just saying that the power of symbols is still there. And power of symbols matters. It matters. Your brand matters. What you stand for matters. What people think of you matter. Not every, not everyone will agree, and some people might disagree very strongly, but it's powerful and it's, it matters. So let's get personal again. What do you stand for? 
What do you stand for? And do others know it? Socrates said, The way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. Gandhi just simply said, be the change you want. As I think about branding and my personal brand, who I am as a trainer, as an individual, Garland McWaters, and what my my business focus is, Empowered to Lead, uh, what do I want that brand to mean? And then as I put this podcast out called The Spirit of Leading, that sort of is a brand, that's a that's a visual and it's an image of what I talk about in the spirit of leading. What do I think is a good place to come from within yourself to be this empowered kind of leader, a leader who helps build things up and not tear things down? Well, as I think about the empowered to lead brand, it's simply to me it means moving forward with an upward trajectory by being empowered to lead. That means an empowered leader is someone who looks for ways to make things better for oneself and others. And this applies to the workplace, it applies to the community, it applies in the family, it applies across the board, each and every place, to your personal life. Everything is personal and everyone takes things personally. And what kind of a brand can I offer other people? What do they see in me? And if they see someone who is empowered to lead, what would that mean? What does it mean to be empowered to lead? So on my blog site, uh, my website, you see right up in the upper right-hand corner my creed, what I mean by being empowered and living empowered. And uh, and I'll repeat it at the end of uh, this podcast, but it's right there. And some time ago, I presented a podcast on the tenets that underlie this empowered philosophy. That's what I mean by it. That's what I stand for. That's what I mean. And that's what I hope to teach and convey. An empowered leader can resolutely stand for something while being tolerant of other people's beliefs. I might not agree with you, but I give you the right to believe anything you want to believe. The empowered leader passionately believes in the for all principle. At least that's my opinion. That is what I stand for. The empowered leader, as I talk about the empowered leader, passionately believes in the for all principle, not just for me, not just for the people I know or I like or who are of my tribe or my flock, but all people everywhere has to be included, totally inclusive in the for all part. And any action that dismisses the human and spiritual value of anyone, that diminishes it in any way, that hurts anybody intentionally, physically or emotionally or financially in any other way, Any action that diminishes the human and spiritual value of anyone else is, in my view, inherently immoral and absolutely unacceptable. That's what I believe. What do you believe? I believe that what you believe is your business. But when you act it out in a destructive way, it becomes everyone's business. So when you leave the room, What are you leaving behind? When you leave the living room or the dinner table or the training room or the workspace, what have you left behind? When you leave this world, what have you left behind? When you stop talking, what will your audience remember? How will they be changed by the experience of you? Will your impact on them be empowering? And will it lead to empower others? Your brand is the impact you have on those 
who know you and who know about you. So my question is, how will others feel about themselves from the experience of knowing you? What is your brand in their minds? What are you and what will you be a symbol of? Once again, thanks for listening. And don't miss out on future episodes. You can subscribe to my blog at empoweredtolead.com and you'll get a notification in your email when a new podcast is available. You can also listen and subscribe on iTunes Podcasts or on Stitcher. So in the spirit of leading, I encourage you to live each and every day by encouraging the spirit, by enlivening the heart, by enlightening the mind, and enlarging the expectations of living in yourself and in others. You are your brand. I'm Garland McWaters, and in the spirit of leading, live empowered.